In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote these words that we find at the beginning of chapter 2. He said, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. And rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. The message that, that I have for you this morning is a simple one. And I don't think that my words will be particularly clever or um, unique. But I, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel, that uh, those of us who have a desire to hear and understand will do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this profound word. He says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. That sounds very similar to something he wrote to the, the Christians in Rome when he said, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ, for it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The cross of Jesus Christ. For those of us who say we believe in it, for those of us who say the cross is important to us because of who it represents and what it represents, and if we've put our faith in the message of the cross, then for those of us who profess that, this ought to be the most powerful, the most captivating, the most awe-inspiring, the most devotion-producing event in our lives. When we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, it ought to be that thing that produces in us just the, the most motivation, the most passion, that everything about it, it, it ought to be something that fires us up. It ought to be something that at times makes us tear up. It ought to be something that motivates us to get off the couch, to get out of the, the row, the pew. It ought to be something that calls us and motivates us to know and to grow as a disciple of the one who died on that cross. There's a story about... Uh, a true story about four mountain climbers uh, in 1957 who were attempting to climb the, the 6,000-foot uh, near straight-up vertical north face uh, in the Swiss, Swiss Alps. It's called the Eiger. And uh, it, it really became more about just two climbers because of the four climbers, two Germans and two Italians, the two German climbers disappeared and were never heard from again. The two Italian climbers, exhausted and close to death, were, were stuck on two narrow ledges on the face of that mountain. The, the kind of governing body, if you will, of the, of the climbing, mountain climbing in that area, the Swiss Alpine Club, because of the, the, the danger of climbing this, uh, this face, just forbid anybody to try any official rescue attempts. And they would do nothing officially to 
to try to save someone. But when this happened, a small group of Swiss climbers that heard about it decided they would, they would undertake a private rescue effort to try to get those two Italians off those narrow ledges on that steep face. And so they came up with a plan, and they carefully lowered a, a climber named Alfred Hellepart down the 6,000-foot north face. And they suspended him on a cable that was a, a fraction of an inch thick and lowered him into that snowy, misty, dark abyss down that north face. This, this is what he said later in his own words about, about that moment. He said, As I was lowered down the summit, my comrades on top grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. And at this moment, he said, I felt indescribable aloneness. And then for the first time, I peered down the north face of, of the Eiger, down that abyss, and the, the terror of the sight robbed me of my breath. And the brooding blackness of the face, falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me, made me look with awful longing to that thin cable disappearing about me in the mist. He said, I was a, a tiny human being dangling in space, between what seemed like heaven and hell. And the sole relief from my terror was that I had a mission to save the climbers below. When I read that story, it, it spoke to me about what really is the heart of the gospel message, what we call the good news. And it's this. We, you and I, and all those that have come before us, we were trapped. But in the person and the presence of Jesus, God lowered himself into our abyss of sin and suffering. And he did it because he had a mission to save the people trapped below. You and me. And because of that, the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. It's, it's a much more radical thing than just, just another earthly religion telling us how to try to be good and telling us how to try to please the gods. It's much different than that. It's a story of, of God risking, sacrificing, pouring out himself for you and for me. Now, the truth is, not everybody's going to believe that. Not everybody's going to accept that message. The Apostle Paul talked about that. He talked about that. In, in the verse we read, he says, For some, it's foolish. It's foolish for those who are headed for destruction. But to those who've received it, he said, it's the power of God. Just the simple message, he said. All I've come to talk to you about is that Jesus Christ was crucified. I think it's important maybe this morning in a, in a church where, where we sing about the cross and where we have the cross on our building and, and, and where many of us wear it around our neck or in our ears or, or have it on the walls of our homes or maybe even on a bumper sticker on the back of your car and we hear about the cross and we see it a lot. I think it's important once in a while for us to be reminded just really what 
the cross meant originally. So for just a couple of moments, I want to take a couple of moments to remind us about what Christ crucified meant. Now, a lot of us here saw the movie a few years ago, The Passion of the Christ, which portrayed it. And maybe many of us have read descriptions, but it's just good to be reminded. I'm not going to show you any images on the screen, but I'm just going to remind you that crucifixion was, was invented by the Persians somewhere around the 5th century B.C. And it, was, it, it had continued widespread use in the world for several centuries until Constantine banned it in the 4th century A.D. And it was widely acknowledged as maybe the, the most cruel, the most, the most uh, disgusting the, the way to kill somebody ever devised. And, and crucifixion has, has spawned its own word in, in, into our language. The word excruciating, which we use to describe, you know, terrible, terrible pain. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. In essence, what happened in, in crucifixion, it was a slow death by asphyxiation with where, where victims actually suffocated to death as their lungs filled with their own fluid. And sometimes if, the, if the, the captors so desired, it could take days for a crucified victim to die. The criminal was, was secured to the cross by, by means of six-inch metal spikes driven through their wrists and through their ankles. And this in itself would, would cause massive bleeding and, and a lot of times veins and arteries would be severed and There'd be all kinds of bleeding. And then the cross would be lifted vertically and then rammed into a hole in the ground, at which point many, many bones would be dislocated. And now hanging somewhat in the air by those, those nails supporting their weight, the criminal would have to push themselves up and down in order just to breathe. Which is why in the, in the gospel account, when it talks about the thieves on either side of Jesus, it talks about them, their legs being broken in order that they might die more quickly. I can't imagine what that would be like. Now, I know what it is to struggle for breath, and most of us do. You've, you've had a time or two where you were underwater, and, and the, the top of the water couldn't come soon enough, and you, and you were gasping for breath. Maybe some of you, like me, grew up with, with asthma, the condition where the bronchial tubes in your lungs collapse and it's very hard for air to get in and out. And I had so many nights when I was a kid where it felt like there was a 200-pound weight on my chest and every breath was a labor, but it wouldn't compare to this. The crucifixion was so barbaric that the Roman citizens were hardly ever crucified. That was an extremely rare case for a citizen of Rome, no matter what their crime, to be crucified. And if women were, were crucified, they would be crucified, nailed facing the cross so that the passers-by could not see the majority of their suffering. The cross itself isn't the whole story that we have about Jesus. We know that before he was placed on the cross, he went through what was known as scourging. That would, that would involve being, being strapped to 
a, a post in, a, in some kind of courtyard or some kind of open area where, where then a soldier would come and take a multi-lashed whip that would be embedded with pieces of bone or glass or, or metal. And then it was used against the back and against the legs of the victim. And part of the process of the skilled, skilled scourger would be to make that whip go in and stick for a moment and then pull out from the flesh. Not surprisingly, a lot of people never even survived that to make it to the cross. So you could see why it would have been such a struggle to pick up a cross and carry it up a hill after going through that. And in addition, we know that Jesus was, was beaten in the face and he was also had a crown of thorns placed on his head. Additional blood loss and pain. And then, after all of that punishment, while hanging on the cross, naked and with typically their bodies in shock, the victim would typically lose control of his bodily functions. That would add humiliation onto the physical pain. And as urine and feces and blood and sweat would, would mingle together in a pool on the ground beneath that cross, the message was very clear. The Romans are in charge here, and you are not. All of which, when you hear that description as disgusting and painful and maybe morbid as it sounds, makes it even more and more amazing that within just a few years, the cross had come to mean the exact opposite of what those Romans intended it for that day. Within just a few years, the Apostle Paul and thousands of others around the known world at that time knew that the events of what we call Good Friday and later Easter Sunday meant the exact opposite. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is in charge around here, and no one else, especially the Romans, is. It's also why people had such strong reactions to it. In Galatians, another one of Paul's letters, he talked about the offense of the cross. And there might even be somebody here this morning that's just a little offended or a little disturbed that I would describe things in such a manner when you came to church perhaps to be encouraged and, and feel happy. And that's part of the scandal of the cross. The Jews of Jesus' day believed anybody that was hung on a cross was cursed by God. And all the other people believed that anybody hung on a cross was just a helpless criminal. But the cross of Jesus Christ proved something much to the opposite of that. And that's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 when he says, Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom, He has used our foolish preaching that's preaching about the cross, to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. 
So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Now what's all that talk about Jews and Greeks and the cross and wisdom and foolishness have to do with us today? Hopefully we can see a little bit of it. The Apostle Paul acknowledged that for some people, the cross is a stumbling block. It's one of those, it's a hurdle. It's something hard to get over. It's something that trips you up. It's something that that just doesn't click. It's something like, I don't get it. It just doesn't seem right. And for the Jews who believed in a God of power and a God of miracles and a God of human deliverance, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Savior who would conquer their enemies and who would be a great military ruler. And, And when he came to the throne, everything would be good. All would be good. Life would be good. And so to think of a Messiah as a suffering servant, their reaction would be, I don't think so. I think the cross can be a stumbling block for many of us today. For this reason. We kind of have this feeling that I should never have to suffer. Why why should I, if God is good and loving and gracious, why should I have to have any problems? Why should I have to suffer, especially if I put my faith in Him? Jesus should give me what I want. Jesus ought to give me everything I want and make my life easy. Isn't that what a good God does? And if He doesn't, Well, then what good is he? And why should I surrender my life to him? The problem is, that just doesn't go along with the Scripture. It doesn't go along with who Jesus revealed himself to be. Several years ago, Haddon Robinson, who's a a, kind of a classic scholar of preachers and and teaching about the foolishness of preaching. He led a tour of, uh, of people over to what's now Turkey. And um, the churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, there's seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, and most of them would have been in what we call Turkey, the nation of Turkey now. He said on the last night of that tour, they were in a city called Izmir, and and they were having dinner at one of the nicer restaurants and nicer hotels. And, and he said they'd had a guide who'd been with them the whole time. And he was uh, a young man who'd been in the, in the U.S. For, for 10 years. He got a lot of his education here. And he said he spoke English just flawlessly. And he said as, as we were eating that night, he began to ask a lot of serious questions about the Christian faith. And there came a moment when, when Mr. Robinson said to him, if you're a follower of Islam, and if you died tonight, would you be sure that you would stand in the presence of Allah? And the young man said, no. He said, there are five things that all good Muslims should do, and I've only done two of them. And so they began to talk a little more, and they began to talk more about the gospel. And he said it, it went several hours long into the night, and, and it got to the place where Mr. Robertson said, listen, if, 
if you're serious about our conversation, and I, I believe you are, he said, it would not be right of me, it would not be faithful of me not to ask you right now, tonight, if you'd like to put your faith and your trust, your confidence in Jesus Christ. And he said, the, the young man looked at him and said, you, you don't know what you're asking me to do. Do you know what would happen if I did that? If I announced it to anybody, my wife would leave me, my family would disown me, my boss would fire me. And he said, then I might want to go back to, to the United States, but the government would not give me an exit visa. He said, I would give up everything. You'll go back home tomorrow. And I would not expect you to support me. And I would starve to death here in my own culture. Mr. Robinson said, as far as I know, he did not make the decision to trust and put his confidence in Jesus Christ that night. But he said this, there are millions of people who've made that decision and suffered all of that kind of loss and endured all that kind of hardship because they are Christ followers. We don't think of it that way here in South Texas. But just go check out the Voice of Martyrs, voiceofthemartyrs.com, and see what it costs a lot of people to put their faith in Christ. There's a beautiful verse in, in Romans chapter 8 that a lot of Christians like to quote that says, and we know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. If you think that that's a promise for an easy life, you're mistaken. That's not why Jesus died. What he's promised is this. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. And he's promised to keep us until the day when all creation is redeemed by his grace. Now for some, that's just a stumbling block. And for others, it's foolishness. The Greeks of Paul's day and the Corinthians were Greek. They were known for their wisdom and for their philosophy. In other words, if we think enough, if we learn enough, we can get this thing figured out and everybody will behave. You know, if you, if you look at the statistics, the world literacy rates have increased dramatically in the last 100 years. The, the number of people, and there's, there's still a great challenge for education around the world, but the amount of people that can read now, in, in, percentage-wise, and in all the different nations of the world compared to 100 years ago, I mean, it's just drastically different. So the world is much more educated. And now with the speed of our technology and the availability of that, it's just continuing to grow exponentially. But still we have wars and more people enslaved than ever in human history. 
And there's all kinds of decadence and immorality all over the place. It just goes on and on and on. Now, if you think I, I would be preaching against education here today, you'd be mistaken. I'm not anti-education in any way, I've, and I've got three degrees to prove that. But there's something centrally wrong with us that education and human wisdom never fixes. It's called sin. Disobedience to God. And a tendency to do it again and again. You see, it was foolishness to the Greeks because, in a sense, they felt through their wisdom and their knowledge that our sin, if you want to call it that, isn't that serious. I mean, why would it be so serious for God to die on a Roman cross? And I think still today, we can definitely drift towards that kind of mindset. We kind of inherit our religious background from the Jews, but we inherit our educational background and most of us our view of the world from the Greek mindset. And there's just plenty of us today that would sit here and say, hey, I'm not perfect. I'll admit that. Take it easy. I know I'm not perfect. But I'm a good person. So why should anybody have to die for my sin? And even more, why should I have to surrender my life to God? Is it really that serious? Besides, Pastor Jeffrey, if you want to play the sin game, if you want to play the sin game, I can find a whole bunch of people, including maybe, and I'm not going to look right now, but I can find a whole bunch of people, I'm not going to name any names, but I can find a whole bunch of people who are a lot worse than me and have done a lot worse things. In one of his personal letters that we have in the Scripture, the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy that he was a mentor to and who he was training. And he said to Timothy, Paul wrote this near the end of his life. He said this, Timothy, here's a true and trustworthy saying. I am the worst of sinners, but Christ died for me. Other translations say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief You say, well, didn't you tell us a week or two ago that, that the Apostle Paul, before he started doing all this preaching, that he was a persecutor, he was a hater, he was a murderer? Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff on the ledger for him. But you've got to remember also that he was an apostle, he was a missionary. He influenced thousands, if not millions of people. And through his letters, billions on the good side. Why would he say, I'm the worst? Surely there's somebody worse. Centuries later, a man that we trace some of our 
church roots to in the church of Nazarene, a man named John Wesley, who was a, a pastor's son and who, if you read his life history, you really can't find anything that's just like controversial, nasty, bad kind of stuff. And on his deathbed, some of his last words were quoting the Apostle Paul when he said, I, the chief of sinners, am, but Christ died for me. Why would a good person say anything like that? Why would they take it so serious? I don't think I can explain that today. I really don't. All I can say is this. If you've discovered the grace of God, and you've discovered your ultimate desperate need for it, then you know what Paul and John Wesley were talking about. And you know why your heart is stirred when you sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The grace of God fully expressed through the cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest thing I've ever known in my life. And I've known a lot of good things. Well, we have our crosses. We display them. We've got um, a second cross being manufactured to match the one we took down from the center and soon we'll have two crosses on each side of our screen and we've displayed a cross on the screen at different times this morning and we wear our crosses some of you got them on shirts around your neck maybe around your rearview mirror we sing about the cross but do we embrace it do we embrace all that it means that we were desperate and trapped and God lowered himself as only he could do to save us and thank God he did for all of us who say we believe in the cross and for all of us who say we follow the Savior who died on that cross the cross may be many things but it must never be trivial to us it must never be something that we just ah, take for granted. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. And Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only in the Lord. In uh, just a few moments, we're going to transition here, and a young lady and a young man are going to uh, make their statement of identification with the cross and the Savior Jesus Christ through baptism. And I pray that all of us today would identify and receive what he has for us. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you today for the power and the greatness 
of the cross of Jesus Christ. What was meant to be an end became the greatest beginning we've ever known. What was meant to be just another, another cruel death became a symbol of hope and of freedom and something today that reminds us that we can have life. And not just life where we just grind through, but life with, with victory and with hope. Life that can, uh, can supply us with everything we need, even in the middle of difficult times and circumstances. Something that gives us a greater purpose than all the empty things that we otherwise would chase after. And Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. You did not have to do what you did for us. Jesus, you did not have to hang on that cross. You did not have to endure that suffering. But you were thinking of us and your love, your unconditional, unfailing, everlasting love was looking through the blood stained tears and through all the suffering you were seeing us and seeing even me Lord I thank you for that today it's amazing and Lord I thank you that I've heard the message and I thank you that I have tried to humbly receive it and I thank you that so many within the sound of my voice have received your grace and recognized their need for it and I pray today Lord that just a flood of your grace and mercy would would overcome all that here your word today. We thank you for new life in Christ through Jesus, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself up for us. And Lord, I pray today that we would be overwhelmed by your grace and that we would proclaim your truth and celebrate your love and mercy in our lives. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.